0: So worship regardless, we're going to be talking about that today. And I I have to just tell you before I begin that often um, when Peter Kapsner and even now George Kenworthy, when he fills the pulpit, which means they come and they speak on a Sunday when I'm not present, um, always kind of making these comments that they take the tough messages. I'm, I'm assigning them. Yeah, you guys all get it, right? The tough ones. Well, today I'm speaking on tongues in worship music. Now, yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm going to be using as kind of a, a guide to this 1 Corinthians 14, but it really finds much of it from 11 through um, around 14 is where we'll, but I'm not going to go through all that. Uh, and due to time, I know there'll be some questions and some things like that, and I'd be happy to take some time if you want to, after the service, to answer some questions that people may have. Also know that when you deal with something like this, there may be some. Um, some of you going, well, "What in the world is tongues?" And in, in you know, I like the music, or I like, you know, I'm sure about church music, or whatever. There may be some of you who could come away and be offended. And man, I got to tell you from my heart of hearts, before we begin, I don't intend to offend anybody. And if I was to do so, I sure would want to know. We're really seeking to call people to grow up and be responsible, and not. You know, to come to one another and make sure that if, if, if you are offended, you go to the person. We're really trying to do that as a body. Um, but I'm going to share three words that are my main points. And, and I'm sharing with you how I understand Scripture here. And I realize people have different understandings on some of these things. But their three words are love, language, and life. And I'll be spending a good bulk of it on love and language. And then can at the end, just talk, talk about life. So do I have your attention, by the way? Okay, good. Well, I'm just kidding. I'm not speaking on that. Um, no, we are. Let's pray. Father, oh, I pray, Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus and for people here and those who, if there's someone here for the first time, I just pray they would experience what we're going to talk about, that they would experience love in such a way that it speaks to their heart. And I just pray, speak to you and through me and to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Love, language, and life. The underlying principle of 1 Corinthians really throughout all of it is love. It's really what about, but at a certain point he comes to chapter 11, he starts talking about propriety and worship and he he begins to delve even more so into this whole aspect of, of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1 says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, what I think is interesting is to get the context of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul begins really in 10, giving some propriety of how you worship in the Lord's Supper. And then he talks about chapter 11. He gives some more instructions. And 12. He now begins to elaborate on the purpose and the use of spiritual gifts because that was a problem in that church, of the way that people were using the gifts that God had given them. Everybody who has opened their heart to Jesus Christ here, has, has asked God to um, fill their hearts, have a gift that is used to strengthen and edify another person, everybody. And, and it's your responsibility. Just let me tell you this. If you're not using it, you need to use it. I want you to prayerfully say, God, how am I to use this for you? So he takes chapter 12, elaborates on that and then in chapter 13 he just stops at this point because he knows that someday this book is going to be read by a lot of people and he knows that there's going to be a lot of marriages so he writes a chapter for marriages that were used at weddings. No, just That's a joke. Anyway, um, no. He writes what is called the great love chapter. He ends verse thirty one of chapter twelve, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Remember fourteen one I just read, follow the way of love. He's gonna, Here's the excellent way, folks. Here's what he says. The first underlying principle of this word love. In 13.1, he begins with these words. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And there's a lot underneath that. The idea that it's just like a cymbal. You can hear a cymbal, but if you don't have any meaning to it, it just is, it just is noise to you. And then he says, if I, if I have the gift of prophecy, or I have faith that can move mountains, or give all that I possess to the poor, die a martyr but have not love, I gain nothing. And so you have this chapter on love. He kind of anchors it in there, and then he begins in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, follow the way of love. Here's the excellent way. And eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. The underlying guiding principle of all that we do in worship, when we worship regardless. Worship regardless means this, that we come with surrendered hearts of God in love to him and to others. Jesus seems to indicate this as well when he says, the person comes to him and says, you know, they're trying to trip him up, they're trying to get him to kind of stumble on something and a guy comes to him, a Pharisee says, you know, tell us Jesus, what's the greatest commandment and Jesus' response is this, it's it's, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and the greatest commandment, but yet there's a second that just falls right in line with it, you can't do one, you can't love God, you can't say you're here loving God if you don't truly love one another. If you're not walking in forgiveness with other people and you're not walking in a way where your character is demonstrating love, you're not loving God. It's just the way it is. And so he says, he says this, it's just like this First, They love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The whole Old Testament that was written, folks, is all pinned on one thing. You whittle it down to love. It's love. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul explains the purpose of prophecy and tongues and gives guidance for their use. And in concluding his teaching, he writes, now catch this in chapter 14, verses 39 through 40, he sums up what he's talking about in chapter 14, and he says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in fitting and orderly way. Again, the principle is love, like love guide all you do in worship. As one commentator writes, he says this, the Corinthian church seemed to be a free-for-all in their use and abuse of spiritual gifts. Now, what you have to understand is that when Paul was writing this, they weren't meeting in big facilities like this. The, first, the actual first synagogues where a whole group of people, maybe a hundred or more even met in those days. didn't happen until the fourth century. The church was in persecution. The church was just starting up, and, it, and the church would meet in homes. And the homes, you know, in that day, they weren't real big homes. Not what kind of what we meet in, where you can sometimes get even 40, 50 people in a room. They're lucky even to get 10 to 15. And some homes were big enough in their courtyards they could get 20, 30, 40 people. So in their setting, they would have a much more free-for-all kind of setting. You know, when you have a smaller group of people, it's a little easier to kind of people just share whenever they want. So this commentator writes, which I think is probably pretty true, he says there was kind of a, a, a use of the gifts, and apparently there were meetings that were dominated with lengthy messages where a person starts praying out in tongues. In a language that others can't understand, that's what it means. In a language, whether it's a prayer language or whatever, if you were to read, in my opinion, chapter 14 from the message, I think it's a good paraphrase in my, my understanding. I think Eugene Peterson, if you read Eugene Peterson, he's from um, Vancouver, British Columbia. He, he taught at um, Regent College with um, J.I. Packer, who wrote the book Knowing God. He's the one who writes, who paraphrased the message. Well, in the message, if you read chapter 14, I'm not going to do that now. You can on your own do that. But this person, this, this commentator, says there, there are obviously these lengthy messages in tongues. And so in his letter to them, Paul painstakingly gives direction and order for the proper use of tongues and spiritual gifts. And in verse 39, it says, Don't forbid the speaking in tongues, but Paul provides boundaries and spiritual reasons for their operation. Church leaders also need, he says, to guide in the use of spiritual gifts so that things are done, as Paul says in verse 40, in a fitting and proper and orderly way, so that our spiritual gifts are used as God intended, and they are intended to be used to build one another up in a loving way. And so in our life and worship, no matter what it's your daily steps throughout your life, you're to be guided by love. And when we come together in worship, even more so as a family, We are to be guided by love. Tongues can become an issue in Corinth. And I think what happened in that Corinthian church, it was one of these things where people began to use it and they felt spiritually superior. It's always wrong to feel spiritually superior by a gift that you have. There's no place in the body of Christ for feeling superior that if you have a gift of preaching or, or exhortation through music that you're superior than someone who has a gift of administration or helps. In fact, one of the great fallacies that we fall into is that somehow spiritual gifts equal maturity. That the, the you know the, the the gift that you have that has greater impact or or may seem to be more God working in it kind of a thing. Somehow that person's more mature. That's baloney. The only way that God looks at a person who's mature, it's not by your use of gifts. There are some pastors and some just recently in the news who have had huge ministries, speak to all kinds of people, but when you look at it, it doesn't mean they're mature. Maturity is character. Maturity is fruit of the Spirit. Are you growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? And do you have self-control? And the greater measure of that that you have... The greater of maturity you have, and I don't care if your gift is just helps, and you think maybe I don't do a lot, but all I do is I help in the nursery. You could be the most mature person in this body, and so they're having problems with this gift being something as spiritual and. And in the context of the community, Paul says, you know, it really isn't a good thing when you're meeting twenty, thirty, where someone stands up and they start speaking in tongues and no one knows what's going on. It's like a gong. It's like a symbol. It doesn't edify anybody because this. if you take it as being a prayer language and there's discussion around that, let's just say, as Peterson and, and many translate this, that it's this idea, there's this kind of a prayer language of tongues. It only is given, and God gives it in indications because it edifies yourself unless someone else interprets it. And I haven't seen that in many different occasions. I've experienced it a few times, but not a lot. It just doesn't seem to work in a large body like this. If we're going to come together in a large body, the whole idea is that we do so in an orderly and fit way. And we are so ordered and fit sometimes that people get frustrated with us because they want to do an announcement, and we say, but you got two minutes. Because what we believe is there's something that God is calling us to, and we want to order those things in such a way that we don't order out the Holy Spirit but we also recognize we live in a culture and a time where if I go to 11.30, there's people here who are really not happy. Right? And so he says, the gifts, even this gift of tongues, what you need to realize, folks, it's a gift, don't forbid it, but its context is going to be much more limited because it's not about helping others. It's about building yourself up. And I'm not denigrating the gift because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Now some people have asked me, what is a free church stance on this gift? And there's two abiding principles in the free church. One is called a wide tent. The idea that we are this wide tent with a, uh, ten statements of faith and they're pretty broad. They're really not, you know, you take them, they're just one step up from the apostolic confession. There's, they're in a sense, they allow for a lot of theology to differences. And the other thing is called the significance of silence, a very important thing in the free church, which says, um, as Greg Strand, as I talked to just recently, and I've heard that even um, Paul, uh, Michelle, your dad, used to even say as well, Michelle Weaver, whose dad is the former pastor, George Kenworthy, that um, the significance of silence is only in matters of salvific areas do we, do we take a hard line. But in areas that are not we allow for there to be diversity out of charity. So someone says, what does that mean? Together, these idea, I wide tense, significant silence, that we don't speak on those things that are really not of salvific matters, about salvation. To, together, this means in areas that are not touching on salvation, there is freedom and charity to agree to disagree. Hard concept for any people to do. And out of love we stand in united, even though in areas we may, not under, we may understand Scripture differently. Even though there are some people here who are baptized as children, even in the free church, that doesn't become an issue, whether it's believer's baptism or infant baptism. That's growing out of the free church. So some have asked me, so what, is the, what does the free church have a stand? Well, the best you can do is say, well, how do the pastors of the free church stand on this? Interestingly enough, I was at a theology conference and they actually took a theology, a survey that they sent to all the pastors of the free church. You know, free church pastors surveyed to a number of different issues on this issue with regard to spiritual gifts. 11% said they're sensationists. Everybody know what that means? No. It basically means this. And in the free church, there's 11% of the pastors who said the gifts that are like word of knowledge or prophecy or gifts of healing and tongues ceased. They were cessationists. They ceased in the first century church. They weren't needed anymore. That's a theological position that some hold and there's some hold here. 11% of the pastors, 72% of the pastors returned and said that they were continuationists. You know what that means? It means they continued on. And 60% of those said that that they believe word of knowledge, tongues, gifts of healing and prophecy continue in the church today and are to be used in the church today. That's a wide tent. And that's what it says about this. And, you know, you might be going, wow, you might be new. What is this whole deal about tongues? You know, it shouldn't be a big deal. Let me tell you that. That's what Paul's even trying to say. It's not a big deal. Unless you make it a big deal because somehow you think that in the use of it, you're spiritually superior or somehow you think of the use of it, that it's something really dangerous. It isn't. But how you do that as a body is done in a fitting and orderly way. So Paul makes this point. If tongues is primarily a gift used to edify yourself, a worship service should use gifts that build up the entire body of Christ. This is the loving thing to do. Love dictates that when we gather to worship, we do that which would be motivated by love to build up as many people here as we can. They'll be careful when I say this because you know what? When you come down on someone and they go, i oh, spiritually superior because of tongues. Let me just share with you, people use gifts in the wrong way all the time. You can use your gift to build yourself up. I could use this gift. I always have to pray and I keep my heart as tender as I can before the Lord that I don't use this to bring glory to me. I use it in order to serve you and to build you up. So every one of you got to check your heart. If you've got a pulse, you're human, and you probably have that tendency, sinfully. And so we look at this, and we go, it's all about love, love, love. The operative word, when we talk about worship regardless, is love. We worship regardless, making our first aim to love God, surrender our hearts to him no matter what's going on in a service, and to love others. So, Paul continues and gives some practical truth around this foundational principle of love. And on it, he goes to language. This is where the whole tongues prophecy illustration is a really good one. I'm going to get into the word prophecy is not future telling so much in the Word of God. The word prophecy is this idea that when, when you say something, there's something so strong in it. It's not the Bible at all, in any means. We always are guided by the Word of God. But sometimes you might write a note to someone and someone says, Man, it was like God speaking to my heart. That's kind of a prophetic word. Does that help? There are times I know that when I'm speaking up here, I can actually almost stand outside and go, that was God right there. I have actually some people who say to me, who write me notes, and say, so like, I feel like you wrote this message just for me. And I was right back, I did. I was thinking about you. No, I'm just kidding. Language. See, in our life and worship, love dictates that we speak a language that everyone understands. Novel concept. I could stand up here and say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Adonai, and you go, "Whoa, oh, he's speaking in tongues!" No, I'm not. I'm speaking Hebrew. I learned it and I memorized it when I was in school. Okay, just, I just say that because I could go on for a half hour and you would all be kind of maybe bored. But the reality is, I sometimes speak like this, and for a while you get bored. Right? I could stand up here and speak Mandarin and a whole group of people, our Chinese students, would love it. And a bunch of us would go, that makes no no sense to me. That's why Paul says, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, eagerly desire that when you speak, God speaks through you in it. Because that touches the heart, that builds up the life. You could speak in tongues, you could speak a language, even Chinese, Mandarin, and, and only touch a few people. So when you gather to worship, use language, it brings as many together as possible. Because here's what you need to understand. Words are merely vehicles. They're merely neutral things that share meaning that we understand. So that when I say book, you understand, you think book. He's basically saying use vehicles that help express your heart so that when you speak your heart, God can speak to another person's heart. It's all about what incarnation was. When Jesus came, when God came in flesh, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, what what language do you think God spoke when he came to earth? Anybody know? No, he didn't speak Aramaic. Jesus spoke that. And Jesus is God. It's just kind of a trick question. He spoke human. (laughs) I mean, it's really, that's a very, that was his native, when he came, it says, it says the word became flesh. Because if you read the life of Jesus, I don't care what culture you're from, if you read it with the words in your culture, you will see the heart of God. God became flesh. The word was a vehicle. Jesus came in the human flesh, both God and fully God and man. And he showed up so that we could understand him. He's doing that all the time. He wants you to go to the place you work to incarnate yourself in the sense of his presence in you so that you touch people. This is not about going to church. We don't come to church in order that we come away from here and go, Boy, I feel better. I can make it through the week. We come to church because we come together so that we can worship this God. So that He can fill us up. So when we go out, we have the presence of God. So every place we step up. Before people, we incarnate this presence and allow that presence through our love and and our joy and our peace and our kindness and our goodness, all the characters of fruit of maturity that touch people's lives. Because when they look at your life and they go, how can you be happy right now with what's going on? You go, it's not about my circumstances, it's about my God. Words are merely vehicles to bring the presence of God. So what does love look like when you talk about that? You see, we use vehicles um, like the word bulletin that gets what I call churchified, and for a long time we called it the bulletin. You know the bulletin was merely a word used in a time in the early 1900s when they were printing things, and they handed out bulletins. They were news announcements. The church took it, and they began to hand out bulletins, which are news announcements. And the church did stay up at the times, and they started to call it something else, but then all of a sudden this became a very holy word. It's not a holy word. So some churches said, let's call it a program, because people, that's kind of what they understand, and so we realize that some people don't like the word program because it becomes too oriented or targeted towards people in our culture. So what we decided to come up with, and call this the weekly. <laughs> really pretty, pretty sly, right? I had someone say to me once, they were upset because when I would give announcements and I'd talk, I, would, I wouldn't tell, tell people to go to the narthex. Anybody know what the narthex is? Okay, it's not a body part like the larynx or or something like that, okay? It's the lobby. And I had someone very upset that I would not tell people to go to the narthex. I said, the narthex is just a lobby. And if I say the narthex, a whole group of people won't know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to use a vehicle called the lobby and say, you know, out in the lobby if you want to. Okay? Here's what's really interesting. Paul's desire, i got to give you this principle, is that we speak a language that all can understand. Our words, which are vehicles, our music, which are merely vehicles, they're just notes on paper, our arts, whether it's videos, whatever, so that the most people that are here can understand. And then Paul gives this principle in verse 23. So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in vehicles that no one can understand, Tongues. And inquirers or unbelievers came in, they're going to say, Aren't you out of your mind? Why, well, I'm not coming back this. But if an unbeliever, an inquirer, comes in while everyone is prophesying, now don't get all weirded out, are just speaking from their heart what God is placing in their heart, and it's hitting the heart. They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God and they'll just say, Wow, God is really among you. So here's the toughest one for all of us and it's in the area of music. It's a a neutral vehicle. And music is merely to be a vehicle to help us surrender our hearts and bring them before God. Now, every age has struggled with this. Today, and especially in the last 20 to 30 years, the church has struggled with this. Ever since, changes have come in that have had electronic music and drums, and, and you blame it on Elvis Presley and the Beatles, but you know what? It's here. When post people put on a radio and turn on music... What do you think most people listen to? Most people who are inquirers or outsiders, they're not insiders, but they're outsiders. So, all throughout the church, there have been this struggle with this. Thank God we don't struggle with this as a body. I am so grateful. That's it. it. (laughs) I'm touching a nerve. I know that. I'm not, you know what? Here I want to say too, I'm just sharing with you what I understand the word of God. You can disagree. I'm fine with that. You can, people disagree passionately on this. We've been trying to struggle and work through this over the years. And I know, it's a, I know for some, and the reason I'm not laughing at, when I laugh, it's we just kind of laugh at ourselves, right? I'm not, it's, please do not be offended. In the 1500s, Martin Luther made a revolutionary decision. Some believers, some even actual historians believe this was far more important than even putting the German language into the contemporary German Bible because it impacted far more people in his day. Luther revolutionized worship. He wanted people to sing. In that day in the church, what would happen is people would come in and only a priest and a few cantors and others would actually sing and they would just do these repetitious things. And so Luther thought, you know what, I want to get the word of God into people's hearts. Most people aren't readers. We're not a real literate society. So why this is why historians think this is the most important thing he did. He wrote words... And put them to beer songs, and they used those in the church. I had a professor at Wheaton in the School of Conservancy, which is the worship, which is the School of Music and Arts, pretty highbrow institution at Wheaton, who shared one time with our class when I was in a, in a music arts class that we had to take, one of our electives, um, that he had just been in a church, and he had played Luther's. Great him a mighty fortress is our God. You know, if you remember the Lutheran Hour, they're going to date me. But some of you remember the Lutheran Hour; it'd come on in the afternoon. A mighty fortress. I don't think the words. It was just you heard the music, and and then you had Davy and Goliath. You know, the little boy and the dog. Gee, Davy. <laughs> I don't think we should be doing that. <laughs> he played that hymn and had the choir sing it and had a person come up to him really upset afterwards played it the way I just played it not the way I sang it but played it the way that Luther originally wrote it and the person was mad and said why don't you play it the way that Luther wrote it he said that's exactly what I did the way Luther wrote it it had much more syncopation to it we get accustomed to what is in our time and our age and we carry it with us And, and, and there's no doubt that's an important thing in our lives One of my favorite stories is of Isaac Watts, because this is happening throughout the church. Watts was the ninth of a dozen children. He was born in 1674 at a time when his father was in prison. He was a dissenter. It was in the time of all the Anglican, Catholic, all the different fights. And then there was a whole group called nonconformists. If you were a nonconformist dissenter, you couldn't even go to Oxford or Cambridge in those days. You had to go to a nonconformist school. His father was one of those nonconformists who was rebelling, who was in prison. And, and when, when, when Isaac Watts was born, his father was actually named Isaac Watts. He was the ninth, named the same as his father. And when Isaac Watts was born, his mother would nurse him outside the prison window of his dad. Eventually, he was set free. Isaac Watson, as as a young boy, was just a natural poet. He loved theology. He read theology. He wrote theology. And at age 20, he was just five feet tall, not a very imposing man at all. At age 20, five feet tall, he's walking home with his his family from their church in Southampton, England, because they didn't take cars. They walked to their church. It was a community church. He's walking home. And, and, and little Isaac Watts, five foot tall, 20 years old, complained to his father. He said, you know, I, Dad, that psalm singing is so dull and boring. Now his father, good man that he was, didn't rebuke him. But he looked at him and he said, son, see what you can do to solve the problem. Well, that was a challenge that Isaac Watts took up to, and he wrote his first of seven hundred hymns soon after that. And he's become known the father of English hymnody, with hits like, kind of a joke, with hits like "When I Survey the Wondrous Cross," "God Our Help in Ages Past," and our all popular Christmas hymn, "Joy to the World." But his music was banished in most of churches. As way too common. In fact, they weren't that. That music was not biblical enough to be sung in churches. Because in that day, when they sang, they only sang psalms. And what he did was revolutionary. And what the father hymn that he did was open up so that Charles Wesley and others began to use and to write hymns. In fact, historians talk about Watson this way. He did something profound here. He actually brought up together objective doctrine and emotional subjectivity, which was one of the reasons he was criticized. Well, you're, you're taking doctrine and you're taking your response and putting an emotional response to that, and he goes, yeah, of course, why not? That's what." And, and what you don't realize is, guess what? Watts did not write one piece of music. He only wrote words. You know what he did? He took the common town songs. You see, every town would sing a number of songs. Kind of like, you know, school has its own fight song. In England, they had had town songs. He took words to town songs so that the people could actually, what they were singing, he put their words to it so they began to get the word of God in their hearts. Now, Music's just vehicles. What we are doing and what we seek to do, and we can get better, and we've been tweaking and we're trying to do more and more of, is to try and meet the needs of all. But here's, oh, I didn't get the principle. Here's the principle. I didn't read this, did I? Okay. Okay. I did read this, didn't I? What, what I think is interesting is what Paul makes here as a statement, as a guiding principle of love, is use language, vehicles that everyone can understand and easily participate in, so that especially the outsider, love at its greatest call for insiders is to sacrifice, surrender, and give way, so those who are inquirers or unbelievers can come in at a level where they live. Now, I, I, that's what Paul says. I'm not saying in any way what we're trying to do. Honestly, folks, we're not trying to target this towards our community and a a seeker group, some of you who know the language. Not at all. We are just trying to be relatable to the community and where people live. I'm just telling you this. This has been my heart. And this has also been our struggle. I'm not sure how God is going to lead us to a place we're out of love. We can use language together in such a way that with our lives we all glorify God. I am, not, I am not saying this in any way. My purpose is not to divide but just give understanding. And the reality is as we walk through this and we as a body go through this, we need God, right? I, you know, this isn't how I was going to end it, but I'm going to end it here. Because if I go on longer, you'll be upset. <laughs> I'm just explaining my heart as I've prayed before the Lord. And we have a lot of growing, all of us, to do. I myself have grown greatly over these years, I've grown greatly over these last few weeks. Because there's a goal that we have in this church. It's a mission that we have for every person here. I could look every one of you in the eyes. You see, where are we trying to do? What are we trying to do in this church? I'll look you in the eyes. We are trying to do one thing. That's to help all people take their next step to know, follow, and become like Jesus. That's it. Bottom line. And that will never change under the authority of God's word empowered by the spirit of God in order to bring glory to Jesus Christ so that the father can reign in all of it now, I don't know where you may be at but my deep prayer is that when you read in Hebrews it says give the sacrifice of the fruit of your lips in praise every time I move into worship. It's not necessarily all as natural. I have to sacrifice. It means I have to surrender. I have to go, God, I'm going to enter into this. So we're going to sing a couple songs, and I just want you before the Lord to say, God, be working in my heart. Wherever you might be working in my heart right now, um, my prayer is that you will take another step to know, fall and become like Jesus. Let's stand together and sing. Mm-hmm.